Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 69, headlined by a women's flyweight matchup between short notice replacement Jessica Andrade, fresh off her victory over Lauren Murphy last month in Brazil. She's taking on rising prospect. Aaron Blanchfield, who was originally scheduled to fight Tyler Santos, but Santos forced to pull out and insteps the veteran Jessica Andrade. Very pivotal flyweight matchup there. Obviously, Andrade has been wanting to uh, to get another title shot, whether it takes place at strawweight or at flyweight, and she's remaining very active by taking two fights in the span of three weeks. Very, very impressive. Can't wait to see what she puts on, or at least performance-wise, what she puts on. And then on the flip side for Blanchfield, you know, rising prospect, biggest spot in her career thus far. First main event slot as well so she has a lot to prove and she has a very stiff test across the cage from her to do it against we have a couple other interesting matchups throughout the card as well uh very much looking forward to this fight uh, or this event uh, i believe there's consecutive ufc cards all the way until the end of march now so strap in folks because there's plenty of mma to ingest over the next couple weeks before we get into the breakdowns, obviously a couple of things I like to do and something that I didn't do in the last two podcasts was a uh, a recap of the, the previous event and um, you know I'm trying to figure out the best way to do it because I haven't been doing the whole unit system or anything like that, um, just pretty much focusing on the predictions uh, as of right now. Um, so I just thought I'd at least go over my lock of the night and dog of the night predictions that I've been giving on the Patreon over there. Uh, First off, obviously, lock of the night play. I, I don't mind eating the chalk if it's worth it. And that's exactly what I did with Jack Jenkins. Felt he was a very good spot this past weekend. One of the best spots in terms of, uh, you know, a chalk-heavy card. I thought he was one of the safer spots. And he goes out there, puts on a full performance, gets that decision victory. Uh, a lot of people expected him to go out there and finish Don because of Don's previous fight against Sadiq Youssef. But we know that Sadiq way more heavy-handed and much more of a finisher than what Jack Jenkins was going to be able to do in this spot and uh, Jack goes out there and uh, nearly pitches a clean performance there and gets the win that increases our lock of the night predictions now to 11 and 2 that's not just the UFC but that includes Bellator as well as the regional shows that I do as well my only two losses coming actually on uh, I believe it was on the regional show one with Jose Delano in the LFA and then another one in the LFA with uh, Pablo uh, Sabori, I believe the kid's name was. Uh, but UFC Bellator Lock of the Night plays have been uh, flawless thus far in 2023. For the Dog of the Night play, uh, I had Alexander Volkanovsky close fight you know I, I think a lot of people that were shitting on me in the comment section last week in terms of picking Volkanovsky have some apologizing to do yes I didn't get the win but for a plus 300 Volkanovsky put on a tremendous performance and was very close to winning that fight uh, a minor slip up in that fourth round in terms of not getting up or being more urgent to get back to his feet before Makachev was able to get that back position and then ride out the rest of the round for two and a half minutes just on the back of Volkanovsky there but I think Volk got a lot of respect from a lot of people and even in a loss i think you can still say that he deserves to be number one pound for pound considering he was the one going up a weight class and still had a tremendous performance so um dog of the night record now for in terms of predictions falls to five and seven on the year uh but again you're betting underdogs you're getting underdog money uh you know with five and with the five and seven record you're likely still profiting off those dog of the night picks like I'm saying, I've been dropping these lock of the night and dog of the night uh, plays uh, or predictions strictly on the Patreon. And that's what I'm going to quickly plug here for you guys uh, covering UFC, Bellator, PFL Challenger Series, PFL regular se season, whenever that starts as well. Uh, the LFA, CFFC, Cage Warriors, and Fury FC all being covered on the Patreon. Uh, I believe we have three regional shows this weekend. PFL on Friday. Actually, all of these taking place on Friday. PFL, Fury FC and LFA luckily if you're on the Patreon you're getting breakdowns for every single one of those matchups and so you can either take that information and bet on it or bet against it the choice is up to you but I will do my uh, do my due diligence in terms of doing all the research required to give you as much information as possible and give you a educated prediction on how those fights are going to play out link in the description below check out the Patreon appreciate all the love and support that people have continuously been dropping over there 
All right, without further ado, let's get right into the breakdowns for UFC Vegas 69. Kicking things off in the flyweight division, we got 6-0 Clayton Carpenter going up against the returning 4-1 and Juan Camilo Ronderos. Now, starting off on the Carpenter's side, he earned his contract with the UFC off of the contender series off of a very impressive performance over Edgar Chaidez. He came in as a pretty hefty favorite in that matchup. I believe it was around that minus 250 range because he showcased that he's a great all-around fighter on his regional tape. He has great striking, great discipline, and throws in combinations, but he does his best work when he is able to get his opponents to the ground and grind them out from on top. He is actively looking for finishes, but never compromises his position by trying to get a finish. So he just stays uh, very calm, cool, and collected, and just waits for opportunities to show themselves so that he can take advantage. In the grappling realm, like I said, that's where he showcases his best work, but he stays very safe even in the striking realm as he showcased on the contender series against a very dangerous Edgar Chires. Chires hurt him in the early goings of that matchup, but we saw that discipline and ability to battle back from adversity from Carpenter as he managed to still fight through that uh, getting hurt early and then just implementing his game plan for the rest of the fight, getting his hand raised via decision. Very promising prospect out of the MMA lab. I have high hopes for Clayton Carpenter, and I think the UFC has matched him up very, very well in his first fight in the UFC. On the flip side, for Juan Camilo Ronderos, he's coming off of a lengthy suspension that's kept him out of the cage since May 2021. That night, he went up against David Dvorak on short notice and got, you know, made quick work of as David Dvorak was able to hurt him and then eventually get a rear naked choke finish to get that win. But Ronderos, you know, still, I don't want to call him super green because he only has five professional MMA fights, but we saw in his fourth professional MMA fight that he went up against a tested veteran in Eric Shelton on the regional scene, former UFC fighter himself. Uh, Ronderos was able to go, you know, a full 25 minutes against him in a very competitive matchup, especially in the grappling realm where both guys had a lot of success. Personally, I thought Eric Shelton deserved to get his hand raised that night as I thought he got the more dominant positions, but I will give Ronderos the benefit of the doubt considering he's the one mainly landing all the damage even though he was the one in the compromising positions. But that's Ronderos' game. He is the one normally going out there and dragging opponents to the ground, putting them through the ringer, either grinding them to a decision or seeking a finish of some sort. But I've also seen him get grinded out and put into bad positions and battle back from adversity himself. You know, the, the fight against Matthew Elliott, I thought he was losing pretty much 99% of that fight before he got that weird arm bar. Uh, you know, it was kind of like a scarfold arm bar from a very weird position, but he actually broke his opponent's arm or snapped his opponent's arm uh, with that submission to get the win. But that was uh, a fight where he snatched victory from the jaws of defeat, essentially. Um, yeah, he, he trains with Extreme Couture, solid fighter all around, uh, but he needs to get his grappling going to have much success because his striking somewhat limited in my opinion very reckless with his uh, uh when he crashes the pocket he's always the one at a height and reach disadvantage uh but luckily he's a good enough grappler that he can take away the height and reach advantage of his opponents when he's able to get fights fights to the ground i've only seen him utilize his grappling against lower levels of, of opponents but i like the technique and uh tenacity i see him doing it with um Again, the Eric Shelton win, the biggest of his career, showcasing that he can be competitive, but I just don't know how he's going to do against uh, better opponents, and that's what he's facing this weekend in Clayton Carpenter. This is a very exciting matchup for me because I think that we're going to see a lot of grappling in this matchup. Uh, Ronderos, very uh, aggressive with his grappling, like I said, and I think that's going to cause Carpenter maybe a little bit of issues in the early going but I do think that Carpenter will be the overall better fighter here I think he's the better striker of the two I think he can keep up with that pace that Ronderos is going to look to put on here and I think we'll see Carpenter get the better positions I think we'll see him win the scrambles and I think he'll eventually be the stronger opponent in these or the stronger fighter in these scrambling and and transitional uh stages of those those grappling uh scenarios that we're going to see uh, and then on the feet I, I do think that Carpenter puts together a better striking game he's cleaner with the shots throws in combinations has a good kicking game as well and i think that's going to cause ronderos some issues in this matchup um 
I like the over at plus money as well. Uh, I think that's a good spot or a good place to target this matchup as I think some people are expecting Carpenter to go out there and just uh, starch Ronderos to, to kick things off here. But I think that we'll see Ronderos get in on the hips and then I think that's going to start some grappling exchanges, which I think will continue throughout this matchup. Carpenter has some finishes on his regional record, but I don't think it's really coming against the highest level of competition. And although Ronderos is still pretty new in his professional MMA career, given that this is going to be his sixth professional MMA fight, I think he's durable. You know, I think he, you know, the David Dvorak fight is not a good uh, indication of what to expect from Ronderos moving forward. He can be competitive in certain matchups, um, but I do think that Carpenter will be the one getting the better of the striking. And then once they inevitably clinch up with each other, uh, each other, I think that Carpenter will be able to get the better positions, land the takedowns, get some control time, and get his hand raised via decision in this matchup. So over two and a half plus money, I like it, but I do think that Carpenter is the one going to get it will be the one to get his hand raised here via decision next up we got a welterweight bout between nine and two aj fletcher going up against 10 and three ufc debutant themba gorimbo starting off on the fletcher side he is winless in the ufc thus far going 0-2 since earning his contract on the contender series with a beautiful flying knee he is a very explosive and athletic fighter as he showcased on the regional scene, being able to take his opponents to the ground and just dominate them from on top with his big power. However, he's fallen on hard times as he's gone 0-2 against Matthew Semmelsberger and Anj Lusa last time around. And I think what's showcasing the most in those fights is his lack of striking defense. He doesn't move his hell, his head very much, and his footwork is very much stalkerish in terms of just moving forward and looking to break his opponent with his forward pressure. And although he had very good success in that second round of hurting Angelusa, it seemed like he just struggled in terms of getting his game going. He exerted way too much energy in that matchup, trying to slow down later, which is why Lusa was able to have success in that third round and win that fight by decision. But I think that when Fletcher can get his grappling game going, just as he should showed glimpses of brilliance in that fight against Matthew Summersberger, that's where he is best. He doesn't train out of any high-level gym or anything like that. I believe he's still out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, but, you know, uh, you see that the reason he likely had a lot of success on the regional scene was due to his physicality and athleticism. A lot of opponents uh, were not able to match him in that, and obviously they got steamrolled because of it. But we see this with UFC newcomers all the time. They are either very powerful or very explosive in the early goings of their professional MMA careers. They make it to the UFC, and then they just fight guys that are technically much better than them, and they're not able to allow their physicality to, or lean on their physicality to get their wins anymore. But Fletcher, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, I think he's starting to learn that he has more, he has to add more to his game and at least go back to his bread and butter of his grappling to get his hand raised. So he might still have a couple wins left up, up his sleeve. It's just how he implements a game plan and sticks to it moving forward. On the flip side, for the debuting Themba Garimba, he comes to us uh, only off of one win. You know, he, he was the former EFC champion. Uh, he made the switch over to North America recently, had his debut uh, for Fury FC in North America and utilized uh, an approach that many opponents have had success against him with. And that was with grappling. In the past, Grimba focused on a you know an aggressive jujitsu guard against uh, lesser opponents, where he's been able to pull off submissions on the feet. A little bit over aggressive, and really not bringing his feet with him when he's striking, which causes him to overextend. And opponents were able to change levels and get him to the ground and grind him out. That's where he seems to struggle the most is with his takedown defense. If he can't keep fights in the stand-up range, or if he's not the one getting the takedowns, he struggles off of his back. And again, he'll start off with a couple of submission attempts off of his back, but he starts to break as fights start to go on, and especially when fighters are able to settle in in that top position, start chipping away at him, and then just continue to grind on him over the course of 15 minutes. I'm not the highest on Garimbo anymore. I expected to be high on him for some reason, but I just really couldn't uh, get behind his game considering all the, the flaws I see in it, especially with his lack of ability to get off of his back when he is taken down. And again, his wild and reckless striking style leads to him getting taken down. You, you see so many times where he's just overextending, not really keeping his feet under him, and that, is, that allows his opponents to change levels effort, effortlessly and get him to the mat. So 
I, I, I wouldn't get our hopes too high on this, uh, what I thought was a highly touted prospect. A lot of people were talking a lot about Garimbo, but personally, I'm not super impressed. Um, and this seems to be a very tough stylistic matchup that he has ahead of him in his UFC debut. I was expecting to be a little bit more impressed with Garimbo when I went to do his tape studying, like I said, but um, I, I think that Fletcher is a good enough matchup here that uh, Fletcher can finally get his hand raised inside the octagon. Um, obviously, um, you know, picked up that one on the contender series, but has gone on to thus far. This is a great stylistic matchup for him. I believe he is he will be able to crash the pocket here. I believe he'll be able to get a hold of Garimbo and drag this fight to the ground. Greenbow, uh, like I said in his breakdown, I, I'm not the biggest fan of his striking because he just he doesn't really stay under himself. He very much extends a lot, overextends to the point that his opponents can change levels and get this fight to the ground or, or get fights to the ground. And that's where he shows the most trouble. That's where Fletcher on the regional scene has shown very good skills is when he is able to get opponents to the ground, he can grind them out, find that dominant position and potentially get them out of there. Greenboy is aggressive off of his back, like I've said, but I think that Fletcher will do a good enough job in terms of staying safe in the early goings. It's when this gets into the deeper rounds that I think that Garimbo could have some success off of his back with the aggressive guard that he has. But I think that Fletcher will stay composed. He'll be able to manage his gas tank well by able to by being able to suck wind while being on top of Garimbo and just grinding him out in this matchup. Uh, I'm a little bit skeptical about his striking defense. Like I said, his lack of head movement is gives me a lot of uh, pause. But I do think his durability will pay off for him here so that he can crash that pocket, land some shots of his own, but eventually drag this fight to the ground where he'll be able to grind on Garimbo for the majority of 15 minutes to get his hand raised via decision in this matchup. Look for AJ Fletcher to get his first win in the octagon, like I said, by grinding out Garimbo here and getting his hand raised by decision. Next up in the lightweight division, we got Nazim Sadikov coming in at 7-1, going up against a fighter with another 7-1 record, Evan Elder. Starting off on the Sadikov side, he hails out of the famed Saralongo gym in Long Island, New York, and uh, looks to be a very solid prospect. He has yet to lose a fight since his professional MMA debut where he got choked out by his opponent, but since then has rattled off seven straight victories en route to eventually making it to the UFC. He throws in solid combinations and gets flashy at, at certain points in, in his fights when he gets comfortable, uh, but his grappling is quite impressive with his ability to time his entries and get these takedowns. However, I'm not completely sold on his takedown game or his overall game considering the lack of competition that he's been going up against during this entire run. He's fighting, you know, very low level guys and obviously he's a victim of, uh, you know, only being able to fight the guys that are put in front of him and not really fighting at the highest level as of yet. But I think that a lot of his skill set might be exaggerated because of the lack of competition that he's been going up against. But uh, good power in his hands, good flashy striking techniques at times, and he does a good job in terms of transitioning from position to position when he is able to get fights on the ground. But I, again, I wonder the effectiveness of his game concerning the lack of um, quality opponents that he's been going up against. That's kind of my, my big holdup in this matchup. I could see him getting outstruck by far superior technical strikers. I could see him getting outgrappled by better technical wrestlers and technical grapplers. But again, I, I might be being a little bit too harsh on him considering how young he is still in his career. Uh, but just some things to to keep in mind considering you know his run his record and uh, the level of competition he's been facing in the past but he has the tools it's just how it looks against competent competition on the flip side for evan elder uh he came into the ufc on short notice going up against preston parsons and he had a valiant effort in a loss there where uh, he landed some big shots on the feet to really hurt uh parsons a couple times but it was ultimately the strong grappling game of Parsons to be able to get the fight to the ground, get some close submission opportunities. And we saw Elder showcase some very good patience and discipline by working out of those close submission attempts, getting back to his feet and getting back to his handiwork. That's where he is best, is when he's throwing in combinations, digging to the body and landing uh, good output and volume, especially with power in almost every single strike that he throws. He's very athletic, he's very strong, uh, and he moves very well, has a lot of explosiveness. I love the fact that he's training with the Killcliffe FC guys, because you got to believe that they're rounding out the rest of his game very well too. 
Uh, his takedown defense could use a little bit of work, but I am impressed with his ability to get back to his feet and get back to his handiwork where he's able to knock out the majority of his opponents. I like what we see from him. He seems like he has some solid potential as well, but it depends on how he can deal with the other guys that are going to be looking to relentlessly take him to the ground. And if he can continuously work back to his feet, he always gives himself a chance to win because the striking is something that needs to be respected by his opponents. This was a tricky matchup for me to really pick a side on. You know, Sadikov, his level of competition has been very weak, and I think that's going to play into this fight with uh, Evan Elder. You know, Elder, not a title contender by any means, but I think that his striking style could give Sadikov some issues here. And if Sadikov's not able to land takedowns, I think Elder can do a good enough job of keeping the pressure on him, landing those combinations, digging to the body, and just very much mixing up the targets of his striking. Uh, and I think that will give Sadikov some issues. I think that'll cause Sadikov to slow down here. And I think his takedown approach is going to start to dwindle as this fight starts to go on. Mixing the, the Kill Cliff FC angle for the elder side, gotta believe that he's going to be prepared for the full 50 minutes should he need it. You know, I liked what I saw from him even on short notice in his UFC debut against Preston Parsons, who I believe is a stronger and, uh, you know, much better with his top pressure than what Sadikov has shown. Sadikov probably better in terms of getting to dominant positions, but I think that pressure that Preston Parsons has shown from that top um top control uh it would have been tougher for elder to deal with compared to what he's gonna have to deal with here with Sadikov. um I lean Elder ever so slightly. I think this should be closer to a 50-50 matchup. But I think that a finishing opportunity will eventually open itself up for one of these fighters. I lean more so on the Elder side who's going to be able to land those clean shots, dig to the body, bring those, bring that guard down of Sadikov, and then end up with the big shot up top. Um, and then on the flip side for, for Sadikov, he might be able to find that finishing uh, position on the ground should he be successful from that top position. Uh, again, not a whole lot of confidence on this matchup. I do lean more so with the better striker here, in my opinion, who is Elder. Like, Sadikov might be a little bit more diverse with the striking skills and a little bit flashier, but I think that forward-moving pressure of Elder mixing up the targets and being the more powerful puncher of the two will benefit him in this matchup. So with a little bit of confidence, I'll be going on the Evan Elder side here, and I think he comes through with a knockout victory probably in the second I'm going to say second round of this matchup. Next up, we got a light heavyweight matchup here between Ovin St. Pru coming in with the 26 and 16 record. He's going up against Philippe Lenz, who comes in with a 15 and 5 record. Starting off with the Ovin St. Pru side of things. Uh, well, actually, he's been trying to fight Philippe Lenz for a while now, but I'm glad that they're finally able to get it going this weekend. It was a very lackluster performance from OSP last time around when he defeated Shogun Hua by split decision. He just chose to play a kicking game from the outside where he kept Shogun Hua at bay. Very rarely and scarcely used his hands, but he just relied on his teep kick up the middle and just a kicking game overall along with staying on his bicycle the entire time. I'm not scared if he was, uh, I, sorry, I'm not sure if he was scared of getting uh, gassed out and possibly being finished in the latter half of that fight, but uh, it was very underwhelming to see the approach that he took in that fight. He's turning 40 in April, so it's pretty certain that we can say that he's in the twilight of his career at this point in time, and he likely will continue just to be a gatekeeper of that top 10 of this division. He's not really showcasing what he has been when he was in the heyday of his career with his big power ability to get guys to the ground and dominate them from on top, finding submission opportunities for himself. You know, even that uh, that the the Von Pru choke that people like to call him now uh, or or allude to nowadays. Um, not really what we're liking from OSP nowadays in, in terms of his lack of cardio, lack of ability to manage his gas tank, and then just lack of ability to be aggressive. He allows opponents to just get ahead of him in the early goings of fights, and if he's not able to catch up later on because of how gassed he is, more often than not, he ends up going on to lose his fights. The, the part of his game outside of his teeps and his kicks that I like the most is that lead left hook of his. He does such a good job, even while moving backwards, to land that lead left hook um, with his lead hand. Uh, obviously, that's a little bit redundant to say, but um, he catches a lot of opponents that are reckless on the way in because it's just so sneaky and it's so sharp and has a lot of power on it that he's been able to knock out a couple of opponents. 
you know, he knocked out Shogun Hua with it in their first matchup, and he even knocked out Alonzo Menafield with it because of Alonzo's recklessness when he closed that distance. He still has that, you know, power is usually the, the last thing to leave an opponent, but St. Pru, um, he can lean on that for, um, if he needs to, but I think that if he can put together an overall game, uh, he'll still end up coming out on the losing end of most of his fights. On the flip side, for Philippe Lenz, this is going to be his second fight at light heavyweight in the UFC, and it worked out well for him last time around, getting that decision victory over Marcin Pracnio. You know, he was having a tough time at heavyweight, losing his first two UFC fights to Andre Arlovsky uh, and uh, the other fight, which is actually... Uh, skipping my mind at this moment in time let me just quickly pull it up here i should have had this ready to go that is the unfortunate nature of the recording game tanner bozer it was the tanner bozer fight where bozer uh got his first finish in the ufc by just thwarting philippe Lins and uh absolutely starching him in that fight i believe he put him out cold from what i remember as well but uh Lins, uh, you know um uh made up for that performance with that win over Marcin Pracnial last time where he showcased good forward pressure uh, mixing it up in the clinch when he needed to landing takedowns when he needed to but also putting that power on Pracnial when he needed to uh, I think he could be successful at light heavyweight you know if he's safe with this sometimes reckless reckless approach to crashing the pocket uh, he can use his strength his ability to get fights to the ground and utilizing his patience on the feet to find those opening that he needs to to land the big shots of his own and land the more significant strikes um, or at least the more impactful strikes in the judge's eyes to get his hands raised by decision I, I like his overall game still and I think he still has a lot to offer for this light heavyweight division just can he keep his durability in check that's my big big question mark especially against the slightly faster light heavyweights he's going to be going up against now but Lenz uh, again former PFL champion million dollar winner for their heavyweight division let's see if he can get it done in the light heavyweight division for the UFC I give him a good shot of doing so it's weird how often the UFC has tried to put this matchup together. It reminds me of Shamil Abdurahimov against uh, Jelton Almeida, a fight that fell through numerous times, and this fight fell through twice before, and now they're finally, you know, knock on wood, I'm recording this on Monday of fight week, hopefully they can settle the score here and uh, uh, actually step in the cage and have the cage door lock behind them so they can finally throw down. Um, I lean a little bit to the, the Philippe Lin side here. My only issue is that sometimes he's a little bit reckless when he closes the pocket, and that fadeaway lead left hook from Ovin St. Pru could be live here to clip uh, Linz and put him out in this spot. But I, I like the grinding style that we've been seeing from Linz, even down a weight class here at light heavyweight. I think now that he's going to start to get that weight cut down a little bit better, you know, he's a little bit up there in age as well, but I think that we'll see a good uh, improvement from him here dealing with the uh, lengthy style of Ovin St. Pru. St. Pru could have some success with that teep kick up the middle and trying to keep Philippe Lenz at range, but I think we'll see Philippe close the distance and crash the pocket enough to push him up against the cage, dra drain that gas tank of Ovin St. Pru, maybe even land a couple of takedowns of his own and really do some damage from on top so i'll lean with the the former heavyweight i guess osp was a former heavyweight as well but spending the majority of his career at light heavyweight uh, i think that lens will be the stronger of the two here be able to get the positions that he needs to and as long as he doesn't get a little bit overzealous in terms of crashing that pocket and evading that lead left hook of Ovin st Pru, he should be able to you know grind on him uh land some good enough damage and then win this fight over 15 minutes eventually getting his hand raised in the spot by this Decision. so official prediction here Philippe Lenz not so hot on his chalky price tag but I think he gets his job done and gets the job done via decision in this matchup next up in the featherweight division we got 18 and 6 Jamal Emmer is going up against highly touted prospect 23 and 0 Hussein Askabov this is a very intriguing fight and starting off on the Jamal Emmer side this is a guy that has all the skills in the world but it just seems that sometimes he makes fight IQ mistakes. You know, I mean, there's the Julian Arosa fight where he had great success in that first round, utilizing his grappling, and then for some reason going out there and willingly engaging in a striking battle with the better striker, and he ends up getting knocked out for his efforts. In the Giga Chikadze fight, had some grappling success, but then played around on the feet a little bit too much, losing to the better 
striker in that moment in time. And then last time around, had great success on the feet against Pat Sabatini, and I don't fault him for following Sabatini to the ground when he had originally hurt him because he did get down in positions and was close to finishing him there. But then he hung around on the feet a little bit too much, allowed Sabatini to get his wits back about him, and then he tried to play footsies with the better jiu-jitsu players and got his shit torn up because of it. That's the qualms and the holdups that I have with Jamal Emers. He has all the tools in the world to be a top 15 to top 10 fighter, but he just makes some poor decisions at times. He's a slick striker on the feet, utilizing his speed and his agility and his length to really land his straight shots down the middle. And we saw it on full display when he was able to defeat Pat Sabatini. And then when he needs his grappling, I'm sorry, we saw it on display against uh, Vince Cashero as well, just out striking him from, from distance. But he also has a good wrestling game and grappling game should he need it. Just don't do it against better jiu-jitsu players like he did against Pat Sabatini. I like what Jamal Emers brings to the table, and I'm still willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. I just don't know if I, you know, I wouldn't attach myself to him if he was a, a big favorite, but at underdog odds, he seems to be very intriguing, especially going up against a uh, relatively unproven prospect in Hussein Askabov. Askabov, like I said earlier, 23 and old prospect, and people might shit on me for saying he's unproven, but man, I, I'm really not impressed with the level of competition and opponents that he's been going up against on the regional scene. You know, a lot of these guys are much older or they don't have enough experience and they seem to have very poor takedown defense, which is where Askabov can just seem to rely on if he doesn't feel like things are going well on the feet for him. On the feet, he's very reckless and throws a lot of wide winging shots and he throws with a lot of speed and power. So I get why he's able to get away with it. But like, you know that there are instances where he has been getting clipped by guys on the way in or he has been given up bad positions on the ground and has been able to be, get controlled by a select few of guys right like donovan desme is probably the one guy that had the most success against askabov but he was the most formidable opponent that askabov has gone up against in his 23 fight run Jamal Emers is going to be a massive step up for him. So uh, I'm intrigued to see whether that style of Askabov is going to pay off here. Uh, he might have some success on the feed because of his speed, but I think uh, he, he might get touched up by the straighter shots down the middle. Um, but his, his wrestling, how good is it really? It looks good. He has great throws. He has great trips. He has you know good timing on his takedowns. I just don't know how it's going to look against higher levels of competition. And that's the holdup that I have here. Like I said earlier, we're finally getting the long-awaited debut of Hussein Askabov here, and I'm very intrigued about how he actually matches up with Jamal Emers. Now, Askabov has a very, you know, a very good record of 23-0, like I was saying, but I very much question the level of competition that he was going up against, and I believe that Jamal Emers is a huge step up for him. Emers's length and speed and, and uh, wrestling background will allow him to keep this fight in a place that he could be very comfortable. As I said in Emers' breakdown, though, I'm very sketchy of his fight IQ. You know, I've backed him in a couple of spots, gone against him in other spots, and he's really not stuck to a game plan that is uh, beneficial for him. As I, uh, you know, the, the Julian Rosa fights like I was talking about, and that's kind of what gives me pause and really being confident in him in, in this spot. Although uh, Askabov has 23 professional fights, I believe Emers has been going up against a much tougher and stiffer competition as and has more um, validity to the experience that he's accrued in the MMA cage to this point in time. I do think that Askabov will struggle to keep this fight on the mat, and I think he'll even struggle uh, as this fight wears on to get this fight to the mat. And then in the striking realm, I think Emers, with his length and his speed, will be able to pick apart Askabov with his straighter shots down the middle from range as Askabov recklessly closes the distance with his big overhand rights. Uh, you know, I like his kicking game, but I do think he's going to struggle to close that distance against the bigger and longer uh, uh, Jamal Emers in this spot. So I lean Emers. I think Emers pitches a, a decent performance here, uh, maybe lands a takedown or two of his own, gets a good amount of control time, as we've seen Askabov controlled in the past uh, against lesser opponents. Uh, and I think Emers is going to go out there and give Askabov his first ever loss. So uh, give me Emers via decision. Next up, we got a women's bantamweight belt here between 10 and 7, Lena Landsberg. She's going up against 9-2-1, Myra Bueno Silva. Now, Lena Landsberg has put together a 4-6 record in the UFC since making her debut to fight Chris Cyborg. 
A lot of people expected Landsberg to fizzle out, but she's been managing to get a couple wins in the UFC at opportune times so that she can stay relevant enough so that the UFC does not cut her. Her biggest win, obviously, over Macy Kiasan, where she was able to expose uh, Kiasan for being more so of a, you know, Kiasan very much leaned on her physicality in a lot of her early fights to bully her opponents to get her wins. But Landsberg was able to rough her up in the clinch with some beautiful knees and showcasing her patented and elbow queen style by cutting up uh, Macy Kiasan in the clinch positions, uh, showcasing that she was a very violent fighter. But now, uh, you know, she's 41 years old, or at least she'll be turning 41 in March, and we're seeing that she's starting to slow down in her performances. She did have a bright moment against Penny Kianzad two fights ago where she hurt her, but Kianzad was able to get her composure back, eventually battle back and win that fight via decision. But Landsberg is just getting outworked, and if you can outnumber her and outwork her or even land bigger shots on her, she will more than likely wilt in those spots. She is, uh, you know, she was a fun fighter, but I just don't think that she has much really left to offer the UFC. And it really wouldn't surprise me if she ended up hanging the gloves up if she ends up losing this fight this weekend. On the flip side from Myra Bueno Silva, she's seven fights into her UFC career, but I'm still questioning, you know, how good she actually is. I have question marks in terms of, you know, like just because of her style, it's just a little, it's a little flimsy for me. Like, she she's very aggressive off her back whenever she gets taken down but there are times where she has been grinded out from on top when she's not able to get the submission she doesn't chase uh takedowns often as through her seven ufc fights she's only attempted one takedown i'd like to see her be a little bit more aggressive with it because she showcases that she has a very aggressive bjj game and i would love to see what it looks like if she's able to get that top position what she mainly relies on is a jab and a low kick, and she stays consistent enough with it at times to really stifle her opponent and land the bigger and more impactful shots, just as she did against Yinan Wu. Uh, but I think the power is what she relies on a lot, and that could be the reason why she is just so conservative at, at times, because she's waiting for that big opportunity where she can land that big power, hurt her opponent, make it look good for the judges. And even if she's not able to get the finish, it's enough for the judges to be like, okay, maybe she got outstruck but she was the one landing the better more impactful strike so let's give the round to her so uh, again this is going to be your eighth ufc fight and i'm hoping that we get some more relevant data on her in this matchup but i've just never been a big person in terms of chasing the chalk on her uh given her somewhat conservative striking or fighting style at times but she she's a fun fighter she's aggressive with uh the the power that she throws um and uh, look for her to utilize that low leg kick to set up the rest of her striking game to unleash that power and uh, really use that to be the reason that she sets herself apart from her opponent, especially in the judge's eyes. I'm always sketched out with the, the Myra Bueno Selva side of things because, you know, she makes fights a lot closer than they should be. And Lena Landsberg, decent enough striker, uh, maybe if she's able to get the output out there, she could keep this fight close with Bueno Silva. However, I think it's going to be the youth, speed, and agility of and power of Bueno Silva that should allow her to get this uh, win and possibly in dominant fashion, whether it comes from a club and sub situation or from an ability to just club her and get that uh, drum going and get the ground and pound victory i think bueno silva will be landing big enough shots to eventually drop landsberg who again very much is on the uh decline of her career on the back end of her career and even though she had some success against carol hosa uh, i think the majority of that was just due to landing one big shot and i think that's what's uh, gonna cause her to struggle here from silva who you know does a good job of maintaining that distance does a good job of also stalking her opponent but you Using her kicks, her low leg kicks, and that jab, I think she'll be able to keep Landsberg on the outside long enough to eventually open up that big strike that she can land to drop Lena Landsberg here and get her hand raised by by finish. I lean the under two and a half more than I do the chalky Silva price tag, but I do think that Silva gets her hand raised here, and I think it comes via finish. I'm gonna say uh, Silva via club and sub, uh, probably second round in this matchup. So Bueno Silva. Second round submission. Next up, we got a lightweight fight on our hands here. We got 35 and 16 Jim Miller taking on short notice replacement Alexander Hernandez, who comes in with a 13 and 6 record. This is a historic fighter here in Jim Miller in terms of the records that he holds with the UFC. 
right now, all-time UFC records that he holds, uh, 40 total fights, puts him in number one, uh, 24 total wins, and 46 submission attempts. In regards to the lightweight uh, division specifically, where he spent pretty much all of his career, he holds records in most fights at 37, most wins at 21, most finishes at 14, and most fight time with 6 hours, 3 minutes, and 59 seconds of octagon time. His name is also riddled throughout the top 10 of other records, whether it's lightweight or uh, just all-time UFC, no matter the division, and you gotta believe that he'll likely be entered into the Hall of Fame once he decides to hang up his gloves. But right now, he's on a three-fight winning streak, and two of those against younger opponents that people expected to, you know, use their youth to their advantage to get their hand raised. But Miller's durability and hard-nosed approach has kept him very active and winning enough to stick around with the biggest promotion in the world. He stays very active from that southpaw stance with his jab and his ability to use that inside leg kick to just keep his opponents thinking about what's coming his way. But he damages that lead leg of his opponent so often, just as he showcased in the Nicholas Mota fight where he kept using it and then eventually uncorked a bomb to the head, which eventually put Nicholas Mota down and out. We saw him pick up a win over Donald Cowboy Cerrone last time around, which is a win that he avenged from Cowboy beating him years and years ago, but he was able to capitalize on a small slip-up that Cowboy had, latch onto that neck, and take home that guillotine choke victory. He's very durable. You know what I mean? The last time I believe he was finished was against Dan Hooker way back in the day. I believe that was in 2017 or 2018. But his durability has held up and he's been able to really push the fight against a lot of these opponents. Uh, I still like what I see from Jim Miller and he's still a tough out for a lot of opponents. Keep your eye on him because he could still go out there and pull off some upsets when he needs it. On the flip side, for Alexander Hernandez, his featherweight experiment didn't really go as planned uh, against Billy Q last time around. Uh, He made the weight, but I think even if that fight took place at lightweight, he still would have lost. Billy Q was just a very bad matchup for Alexander Hernandez, so I'm not going to give him too much flack for that. The downfall of Hernandez's career seems to be his lack of ability to have a solid gas tank or at least manage it well, but I think that also comes from the, the, the pre- pace and pressure of the opponents that have been able to defeat him. Like Hanato Moicano sticking with him in the striking round and really putting the pressure on him in that second round to get that finish. And Billy Q, that's his MO. That's his game. He you know has close fights in the early goings, but then he weaponizes his cardio and drains and uh, finishes opponents late. That's why he beat Alexander Hernandez, and that's why he was the favorite going into that fight. Even with the physicality and athletic advantages Hernandez had going into that fight, I think Hernandez, uh, you know, his his power and his strength will allow him to dictate um, where fights can take place, and that could be a benefit for him in this matchup. So. You know, I I like Hernandez. I I like the fact that he had partnered up with Factory X, even though it hasn't been going his way over the last couple fights. But I think he's one of those fighters that is going to have a a permanent roster spot, essentially, uh, with the UFC. You know, flip-flopping wins, uh, maybe getting a two- or three-fight winning streak going, and then losing a fight or two. But um, just off of his physicality alone, I think that Hernandez will always be in the UFC. And uh, a fighter that will always provide uh, tough opposition for opponents that aren't able to Billy Q him or Hanato Moicano him. I think that this is a great short notice opportunity for Alexander Hernandez. He has all the advantages in terms of the the physical traits here, right? He's the faster of the two, much more powerful, has way more explosivity. And I think that would allow him to uh, get the positions that he needs here against Jim Miller. Whether it's landing takedowns, as we've seen Jim Miller a little bit too comfortable off of his back at times, I think Hernandez's power will allow him to get the positions that he needs. I think he'll get that respect of Jim Miller. And, uh, you know, this could go one of two ways for Hernandez. Either he starts as Jim Miller right off the bat, or he uses his strength against him, pushes him up against the cage, starts to slow Jim Miller down, drag him to the mat, and just grind on him. We've seen Alexander Hernandez's gas tank be his problem in the past and Jim Miller if he can get that early respect for Hernandez could potentially set a pace to slow down Hernandez and eventually take over later but I think that we'll see um, Hernandez get that respect from Jim Miller early on in this matchup 
grind on him against the cage um, and, and just be the better overall fighter. I'm not the hottest on his uh, price tag here as Jim Miller is a very durable fighter, is a guy that never really quits on himself. So if Hernandez does start to weaken a little bit, if this fight goes into deep waters, Jim Miller could absolutely find a position to get the finish as well. But Aline Hernandez, uh, again, I, I can't really settle on a method of victory here. I'm going to ultimately, with very low confidence, say that he wins this by decision with a lot of grappling, a lot of control time, uh, and then staying safe when he is able to get this fight to the ground, or he can just get that quick uh, quick uh, knockout victory in the early going of this matchup. But um, yeah, I, I, it's going to be tough for me to settle on a method of victory, but I will lean on the Alexander Hernandez side here. And just for the sake of the podcast, I'll go via decision. Next up, we got a light heavyweight matchup between 11 and 4 William Knight and 15 and 6 Marcin Prakniel. Starting off on the William Knight side of things, it seems like the cat is out of the bag from what to expect from William Knight in almost every fight. He doesn't throw a lot of output and it seems like he very much relies on his knockout power early or he tries to overwhelm you with his strength but his inability to manage his gas tank has usually been the reason he loses his fights. I don't think that he has a lot to offer outside of round one and I think a lot of his win condition relies on him getting that early knockout. If he can't, then I think that's where we see opponents start to take over, possibly finish him late in fights, similar to what Devin Clark was able to do, but even get him into bad positions where he just struggles to get out of it, like he did against Dao Eun Young, continuously getting taken over, uh, taken down over and over again. One thing I'll always remember about William Knight is he actually fought on the card uh, that I went to the Apex for when he fought Fabio Charant. And, you know, the uh, Apex is a very cool atmosphere to watch the fights in. But the best thing about it is the, the hearing the kicks and punches and all that landing. And the biggest strike that I heard that entire night was one of the body kicks that William Knight landed in the beginning or the first minute or two of that matchup. It only lasted four minutes, but it was very quick. Uh, or sorry, it was at least uh, two minutes into that fight that he landed a beautiful body shot uh, with his kick. And it just resonated throughout the entire uh, apex there. Uh, getting back to his fighting style again, he, he beat Alonzo Menafield, which is the biggest one of his career. But I believe almost everybody agrees that that was an egregious decision that should have gone Alonzo Menafield's way. I don't think William Knight has a big or high ceiling at all. I, I just... I think he relies too much on his early physical capabilities and his explosions to get his wins because if he can't get that early going, then he's kind of screwed, in my opinion. On the Marcin Prakni outside, he's coming off that loss to Philippe Lenz, and I don't think a lot of people expected him to be in the UFC for that long, especially considering that he started his UFC career 0-3, getting finished in the first round by every single opponent, but... Luckily for him, the UFC gave him another shot against a power puncher in Khalil Roundtree, and he did a great job of utilizing his kick-heavy style and his movement and staying on the outside and keeping Khalil at distance just off of kicks and movement alone. I think that's probably the, the, the biggest part of his game is his ability to use that karate style and just kick, from his, uh, kick his opponents from distance and then trying to unload with his hands when he feels that he is at a perfect range to take advantage of a slip-up from his opponent. I just don't know how far Pragnell will really go in the UFC. I, I think that some opponents are going to be able to clip his chin and put him out. And, you know, he's shown some decent durability improvements over his last couple of fights compared to what he showcased in his first three UFC fights. But I think it's just a matter of time before he ends up getting clipped by a, uh, you know, a fast, explosive, quick fighter that is able to get to his chin. Philippe Lins wasn't that guy. Khalil Roundtree seemed demoralized with that kicking game that Prakniel was imploring or, or, or implying. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I just, I just wasn't really... Overly impressed with what we saw from uh, Prakneo uh, over his last couple fights. So um, look for him to lean on that stick and move style with his kicks to find some success. I just don't think that's going to take him very far in this UFC light heavyweight division. I really thought I'd have more confidence in Prakneo going into this matchup, but seeing how often he was getting clipped by Philippe Linz gives me some pause that William Knight has that knockout power that he could potentially catch Prakneo in the early goings of this fight. The best way to possibly approach this would be to live bet Pragnio after round one. As we've seen 
you know, William Knight very much slow down in fights, and you see the majority of his knockout power very much start to dwindle. Uh, I think Prakneo's footwork and karate style stance, if he can stay on his bicycle enough, should be able to keep him safe in the early goings of this matchup. Use the style that he used against Khalil Roundtree from distance, kicking William Knight over and over again, keeping him at bay, and then doing a good enough uh, job in terms of defensively staying away from William Knight. Uh, the size advantage of Prakniya will allow him to stay safe in this matchup. Hopefully, as long as his gas tank uh, is able to survive over the 15 minutes. Uh, I like the over one and a half as well, as I think that we'll see large amounts of grappling from either side, um, especially if they're not able to get that early knockout. Uh, but I think that ultimately we'll see Prakniya break away um, you know, uh, use his kicks, stay on the outside, uh, and just chip away at William Knight, picking up a decision victory. Again, I lean more so the over one and a half, uh, not with a whole lot of confidence, but I do think that we'll see a large amount of stalemating throughout this matchup. Uh, mainly, maybe William Knight trying to conserve his energy, Prakneo trying to stay away from the big power, uh, but then some grappling situations where Knight might try to get that takedown to try to, to, try to control Prakneo from on top, uh, but then Prakneo just being too strong um, um, and too big, uh, allowing him to get away, get at distance, and get back to that karate-style kicking game from safe distance like he did against Khalil Roundtree en route to a decision victory. So give me Marcin Prakneo over one and a half, but more specifically by decision to get his hand raised here. Big boys are on deck here as we got the heavyweight division on display with Josh Parisian coming in at 15 and 5 and Jamal Pogues making his UFC debut coming in at 9 and 3. Starting off on the Parisian side, it will always mystify me that he was such a chalky favorite in the early going of his UFC career, but it's taken a couple of opponents now to expose him and people see that he's really not that good. Like he has a flashy striking style and he can land takedowns if he is a better takedown artist than you. But outside of that, not the best gas tank, you know, not the cleanest striking. Uh, he's very flashy with his striking when he really shouldn't be, in my opinion. But uh, he can still scrape out wins over bottom of the barrel guys like Alan Baudot or um, Rocky Martinez. But, you know, we've seen the Dontel Mays put him through the ringer. We've seen uh, Parker Porter put together a much better MMA performance and defeat him. It seems like the gas tank of Parisian really is the bane of his existence or the bane of his UFC career because it seems like when fighters are able to drag fights into deep waters, that's where we just see that effort from him really start to dwindle. You know, like I said, he's going to beat the Alan Baudos and Rocky Martinez's, but when you're coming up short against guys like uh, Parker Porter and Don Mays, that really lets people know what your actual ceiling is like, especially at the highest level in mixed martial arts. On the flip side, for Jamal Pogues, he earned his contract off of a solid 15-minute striking battle on the Contender Series, and I think that was more so a uh, very important for him to go out there and showcase his striking because he had uh, his first shot on the Contender Series kind of just thrown out by Dana White. Uh, Pogues landed numerous takedowns in that fight. I believe it was up to seven takedowns and controlled his opponent for the majority of that fight. And it was an uninspiring performance that Dana just didn't want to see. So they didn't decide to sign him that night. So Pogues reworked his game and even on the regional scene still showed off his grapple heavy style. But he made it a point that he wanted to go out there and strike with his opponent this time around. And he showcased that he could do that. Sticking and moving against his opponent, utilizing his range, utilizing his movement uh, to completely outstrike his opponent. He has grid cardio as well so that he could have fueled that striking heavy approach. Uh, but I think now that he's in the UFC, we'll see him go back to that grapple heavy style just because of how um, surefire it is. You know, he has good takedowns, he has good top control, and he has good enough gas tank to fuel that for 15 minutes if he needs to. And I think over the majority of the mediocre level heavyweights in the UFC, that style is more than enough for him to get his hand raised. So, you know, look, don't look for Jamal to just stick with that striking style that he had on the contender series. Look for him to have some heavy takedowns uh, this weekend and in the future whenever he fights. That's his style. Don't let one performance completely sway you the other way. Let that performance give you confidence that he can choose that approach if he needs it. But the more dominant style and the more uh, reliable style is taking fights to the ground and grinding his opponents out. I'm a, uh, still, you know, uh, 
coming to grips with the amount of confidence that I have in Jamal Pogues in this matchup. Like, I like his style of being able to showcase that he can strike from distance, stay on his bicycle, and showcase good enough cardio. But on the regional scene, before his contender series fight, he was showcasing more of a grappling style, which I think will be very effective here against Josh Parisian. We saw Parisian struggle against Dontel Mays when Mays was able to get the grappling going. And I think Pogues, if he just goes back to what he did on the regional scene, will be able to grind out Parisian here over 15 minutes and win this fight via decision. Uh, you know, I think Pogues has good enough movement and striking to stay away from the big power of Parisian in the early goings of this matchup. And as this fight starts to get into deeper waters, Parisian finds it harder and harder to land on his opponents. And sometimes he overextends, which leaves the takedown opportunities for Pogues to eventually get this fight to the ground. So I, I like Pogues here. Um, again, I, I, I'm... I feel skeptical about how confident I am in him in this spot because this is still, you know, lower to middle level of heavyweights, but I feel like he has the perfect style to beat a guy like Josh Parisian, who's just really not that good. You know, unless he can get that early knockout or if he can be the one that's landing the better strikes, sure, he might be able to get his hand raised, but I think that Pogues is the better striker here. And I think that Pogues is the far superior grappler in this matchup where he'll be able to get that top position and really grind on Parisian in this fight. So, um, yeah, I'm going to go Jamal Pogues here, and I think he wins this fight via decision. Next up, we got light heavyweights going out of here with 12-4 Beverly Hills Ninja Jordan Wright going up against 5-1 Zach Pauga. Starting off on the Jordan Wright side of things here, for as much crap as people want to give him, the man's fun. He has a lot of action-packed fights, and even though he hasn't been getting his hand raised as of late, he is still a very fun fighter to watch that a lot of people just like to fade because of his durability issues. But he also has gas tank issues, which is how we saw uh, Dusko Todorovic finish him in his last matchup. But he still has a lot of power. He throws with a lot of uh, speed as well early on in fights, but he just does a horrible job of managing his gas tank, which is why opponents are able to just drown him a little bit later and get him out of there. But even his durability, that is a big question mark. And I think that's kind of going to be, you know, the reason why he is never able to push through through that next level of his skill set because he has that that issue. Like once he gets touched on the button, more often than not, his lights are going to go out or at least he'll start to get demoralized, start to slow down and then eventually just lose off of being a, a broken fighter. I'm surprised the UFC is still giving him another shot considering the run that he's on right now. But like I said at the top of his breakdown, he is an action-packed fighter that a lot of people enjoy watching. And I think the UFC is very thankful that he's still willing to go out there and, you know, come away on his shield more than anything uh, while providing a fun uh, performance and a fun fight for a lot of people to get behind. Maybe you get some fight of the night bonuses, some locker room bonuses, whatever it might be. But just for his long-term health and longevity within the sport, probably not the best way to go about it. On the flip side with Zach Pauga, he fell short on the Ultimate Fighter finale, getting knocked out by Mohamed Usman, who's not a big hitter by any means, so it's very surprising to see Pauga go down from a shot like that. But when Pauga is at his best, he utilizes the full MMA game and is able to really put the pressure on his opponents and mix in sneaky takedowns behind his combination striking. He has great cardio for a big boy, especially training over there at Elevation Fight Team in Colorado. He has great training partners, as he's usually with Curtis blades pretty much every single day and then obviously a very solid coaching staff as well headed by cody donovan and um uh, the other uh, coach's name is escaping me at this moment in time so i'm very pissed off at myself because he is a very solid coach as well but uh Pauga turns 35 at the end of the month and very surprised to see the ufc keep him around even after losing his uh ultimate fighter finale fight but they see something in him that they believe he could offer some uh, good fights or maybe even have some potential for himself in this light heavyweight division. Look for a solid all-around game from this fighter, especially with a good gas tank, to fuel that for 15 minutes if he needs to. And I feel like this is a guy that can really turn up the pace in the latter rounds should he need to. I think he, I think he has a couple wins that he can rattle off in the UFC, but I think his ceiling is somewhat capped because of his age. Uh, possible durability issues and just you know he does have an overall good game but I just think the top of the lightweight light heavyweight division will be a little bit too much for him
it's tough to have a lot of confidence on the Zach Pauga side here as he is the the better overall fighter. But like seeing what he got put out with by Mohamed Usman, Jordan Wright is absolutely capable of doing the same thing. And Mohamed Usman, as big and intimidating as he looks, he's not a big finisher. You know, if you look through his record, he mainly grinds his opponents out with a volume style, a kickboxing style, or a grinding approach up against the cage. But like he just hit Pogo with a short left hook that didn't seem like it had any sauce on it. And Pogo went out clean. And Jordan Wright, you know, as much as shit as we want to give him, this guy still has big power in his hands that we need to respect. But I think that Pauga has a good enough overall game to stay safe in the early goings of this matchup, whether it's clinching Jordan Wright up against the cage, landing some takedowns, landing combinations from the outside while staying away from the big power. Um, but minus 300, it's just a little bit too much for me to want to willingly throw Pauga into parlays or anything like that. Uh, I think if you're willing to eat any chalk in this matchup, it should be the violence. You know, the under two and a half fight doesn't go to decision because Jordan Wright does not do a good job of managing his gas tank and Pauga training with the Elevation fight team, training at Elevation, and showcasing that he has good cardio over 15 minutes should he need it, will be able to drag this fight into deep waters and then eventually finish Jordan Wright probably in the second or third round of this matchup. I don't like the one and a half. I, I do believe that we'll see Pauga be safe in the early goings of this matchup, but I think he'll turn up the heat in the second and third round, eventually getting Jordan Wright out of there by some sort of ground and pound from on top when he gets that dominant full mount position. So let's go Zach Pauga with a late TKO finish over Jordan Wright. Time for the main event of the evening in the flyweight division. We got Jessica Andrade coming in with a 24-9 and record going up against hot prospect Aaron Blanchfield who comes in with a 10-1 and record. First off, credit to Jessica Andrade for stepping in on a week's notice here against a highly touted prospect like Aaron Blanchfield. This further drives home the point that Andrade is definitely one of those fighters that's any time, any place, any weight. As we know, she's been jumping up and down from strawweight to flyweight over her last couple fights. Her last fight actually taking place at flyweight less than three weeks ago where she was able to decimate Lauren Murphy over 15 minutes, a fight that could have been stopped on numerous occasions, but for some reason the referee decided to continue allowing Lauren Murphy to take damage, as did Lauren Murphy's corner. That's a discussion for another day, but Jessica Andrade still showcasing that she can go out there and have career best performances even at uh, this stage of her career. She landed 231 significant strikes in that 15-minute matchup, and she also tied Amanda Nunes that night for most win wins in women's, MM or women's UFC history with 15. She can actually break it this weekend if she gets her hand raised as well. We know what her style is, right? Hard nose, forward movement, big striking combinations. And although she may not be the most technical by throwing straight shots down the middle, she's been making her wide winging hook style work for her for the majority of her career. You know, it's really only the best women that are beating her at this point of her career. The the Valentina Shevchenkos, you know, the 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 Rose Nama Yunuses, the Wiley Zhangs. And it's very hard for a lot of opponents or, or fighters to close that gap between the, that top three, top four of this division and the rest of the the, UFC, the women's UFC roster. I, I like what Andrade brings to the table, not to mention with her strength as well. When she feels she can take her opponents to the ground and dominate them there, she's able to do that. But she loves moving forward eating some shots on the chin if she needs to, but her durability is held up to this point, and then letting go with her big strikes on the feet to either knock out her opponent or just break them time and time again as she endlessly crashes the pocket with no fear at all. I love Andrade's style, and she is going to be a tough out for anybody that decides to sign on the dotted line with her, especially a highly touted prospect like Aaron Blanchfield. Speaking of Aaron Blanchfield, it took four fights for her to finally get a main event slot, and it may have came with weird circumstances considering that Marlon Vera versus Corey Sandhagen was supposed to be the headliner for this card. That fight gets pushed back so they can headline in front of a crowd, but still a spot that she is deserving of considering the amount of hype and uh, uh, you know what kind of prospect she is. She's a fun fighter. You know, it's crazy that she got booed in her last matchup. Being from that New York, New Jersey area, she got booed at MSG. She got booed because she was going up against fan favorite Molly McCann. But I hope that the fans over there are now uh, eating their words and regretting the fact that they booed her, especially considering how much potential she had and how dominantly she, sh she defeated Molly McCann, defeating her that night. 
her only professional loss came at the hands of Tracy Cortez in a very close fight and at the early parts of their career. But since then, she hasn't looked back. She has showcased a great overall game, but I think she does her best work when she's able to drag fights to the ground. I think her striking still needs a little bit of work, but that's obviously to be expected with a, a fighter that's still somewhat new and, and rookieish in their career. But Blanchfield has all the tools to be a great fighter. I just don't know if this is the point or or the the trajectory that she should have been on in terms of getting vaulted into a big spot like this this early in her UFC career. Not to mention a five round fight as well. The only real hiccup we've seen in her game in the UFC thus far was against JJ Aldrich. You know, J.J. Aldrich is a fighter a lot of people overlook and, you know, kind of underestimate her skill. But Aldrich is a solid striker. And we saw that she was able to stuff the takedowns of Aaron Blanchfield. And she was doing very, very well on the feet until Blanchfield got a hold of her neck and was able to get that submission victory. But up until that point, that heavy chalk on the Aaron Blanchfield side was not looking good. But she managed to pull that fight out and get her hand raised. She's still young. She still needs some improvements in her game. And she's going to be able to beat the majority of the women in this division. But there is a clear line dividing the top of the division and the rest of the fighters. And I don't know if Blanchfield is ready for that next step up to to take uh, her career to the next level. I think she needs a little bit more grooming. And I think we might end up finding that out this weekend when she goes up against Andrade. Right off the bat, I, I felt pretty damn confident on the Jessica Andrade side. And, you know, there are some question marks in terms of how Blanchfield will deal with that hard nose striking style of Jessica. But I really think it comes down to the strength. And I think that, you know, from what we saw in the J.J. Aldrich fight, Aaron Blanchfield will struggle with the striking approach of Jessica Andrade. And I think that she'll struggle even more getting this fight to the ground where she could have a little bit of an advantage. And I think that's strength is going to be the ultimate difference maker here i did tape study the tyler santos fight originally and did lean the tyler santos side because i thought the strength would play a difference and i think you're getting an even stronger woman here in jessica andrage although smaller she's shown that she's a tank of human being and i think that she can get that respect early from aaron blanchfield with the big power that she can put on her and i think eventually we'll see andrage just be too much for blanchfield and we'll see uh, andrage knock her out in the spot so um yeah, I think the veteran experience, I think the the hard-nosed striking approach, I think the the strength, uh, possibly even the takedown defense and the get-up game from Andrade will keep her safe long enough in this matchup to eventually find that knockout over Blanchfield, maybe in the third or fourth round of this fight. Um, yeah, I think the former champ gets her hand raised here, derails the, the hot streak of Blanchfield, but Blanchfield will be back. She's still young. She has a lot to learn. This will be a valuable experience for her. I do think that Andrade will get her hand hand raise though by knockout and that's a wrap on the breakdowns hope you guys enjoyed the episode as always appreciate all the love all the support hitting that like hitting that subscribe uh you know seeing the numbers uh viewership account i should say still being you know where uh, it was before and even more so than it was before is very very encouraging again i cannot thank you guys enough i'm very appreciative that i can still continue to do this thing uh and still get the love and support that i had in the past maybe not as much but still from a youtube viewership per, uh um, uh, approach you guys are absolutely killing it soundcloud podcasting audio all that stuff still killing it love you guys appreciate you guys um yeah uh just a quick reminder pfl fury fc and lfa breakdowns on the patreon starting to drop them later on this evening and they should be up in full by wednesday or thursday of this week so make sure you guys keep checking that out a ton of breakdowns coming your way but again we are back at it next week as well uh, i believe for ufc vegas 70 which is headlined by nikita krilov and ryan span so keep your guys keep your eyes peeled for that and i hope to continue to stick with these monday drops for the mma lockers because i know you guys love getting this information nice and early in the week you guys are welcome appreciate you guys and i'll see you guys again next week peace